Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas. Tonight, Michael and I want to thank doctors, nurses, healthcare workers, first responders, police, EMTs, firefighters, grocery store workers, pharmacy workers, box store workers, bank employees, municipal workers, truck drivers, delivery drivers, and restaurant and fast food workers. Without these people continuing to report to and do their jobs, none of us could survive the stay-at-home and or quarantine periods that have been necessary to slow the spread of COVID-19 around the world. We'd also like to give a shout-out to trainers, exercise riders, and grooms who continue to report to tracks around the world to feed and care for their horses stabled there, to zoo, park, and aquarium workers who continue to care for the animals around the world, and shelter and rescue workers who continue to care for the cats, dogs, and other animals who are waiting to find their forever homes. Finally, we want to thank state, local, and municipal officials who are gathering data, assessing it, and keeping the public informed about conditions in their city, county, and or state. Thank you for joining us for Episode 7 of Clear and Convincing, State of California versus Angelo Buono and Kenneth Bianchi. Buono and Bianchi were cousins who terrorized the Los Angeles area during the late 1970s with a series of murders of women and girls ranging in age from 12 to 28. They displayed the bodies of the victims they raped and murdered on hillsides and in open areas. Dubbed the Hillside Strangler by the media, they left little evidence behind and would have escaped detection but for Bianchi's twisted desire to kill. While working as a security guard in Washington State, he murdered two women and was quickly identified by police. We'll talk about the murders, the investigations, Bianchi's arrest and confessions, Buono's arrest, trial, and appeals. We'll also talk about Bianchi's post-conviction claims. We are a live show, and as always, calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347 347- 989-1171. And good evening, Michael. Good evening, Lisa. I'm going to go ahead and take the blame, ladies and gentlemen, for us getting the late start tonight. Uh, all sorts of computer trouble. Had to come in and get the new one set up and everything. So hopefully you're going to be listening to a improved audio 
version of our show here coming up and be looking on the be on the lookout for some other things I'm looking to do as well with this show. Oh great. Mm-hmm. All right. And I guess we ought to like I said, we thank box store workers because if they weren't doing their jobs we couldn't be on the air tonight. Or I'd Absolutely. be running the board, which is just truly scary. <laughs> Lisa, I have full faith that you could run this board by yourself, but luckily I'm here too. So, all right, well, let's get to uh, Buono and Bianchi. Let's do it. Now, what do you know already about the Hillside Strangler case? To be honest, I've heard of it, but of everything, the Hillside Strangler, of all, you know, when you look at the famous people, Gacy, uh, Manson, uh, you look at all these famous cases, really Hillside is probably the one I know the least about. I mean, I know the name, but to be honest, I don't know too many details. Okay. All right. So, yeah, there isn't a lot of uh, internet presence of claiming their innocence. Right. Which is fascinating. But well, I mean, um, if you look at it though, when you look at these uh really high profile like celebrity things, even you know, obviously I wouldn't put Casey on this level, but even Casey, you know, when it gets to the level of popularity that it is, really West Memphis three I guess kind of broke the mold in that case. But it seems like it's pretty much unanimous across the board. Right, right. So, all right, well, let's talk about, we're going to talk about a little bit about uh, Buono and Bianchi. Unfortunately, there's not a whole lot that we know about the victims. Uh, The cases occurred in the late 1970s, between 1977 and 1979. And there just wasn't a lot of, you know, internet. There was no internet at that time, as I recall, being a 14-year-old, 15-year-old. So we know very little about the victims, which is a shame that it's kind of faded so much that there isn't even a comprehensive site to learn more about each of the victims. So... All right, let's talk about Angelo Buono first. He was born in Rochester, New York on October 5th, 1934 uh, to Angelo Sr. and Jenny Buono, who were recent immigrants from San Buono, Italy. So I'm wondering uh, if they are – if their their real last name was even Buono. Or whether when they emigrated, somebody assigned the name Buono because of where they were from, which happened a lot uh, in immigration during the early 20th, late 19th, early 20th centuries. Um, When Angelo was five, his parents divorced, and he and a sister moved with his mother to California. And I believe he was raised in Glendale, California. As a young adolescent teenager, he engaged in petty crimes, mostly car theft, burglaries, things like that. But also in his early teens, he displayed 
a penchant for sexual deviancy. He talked about beating and raping girls and did not have a very high opinion of women. He was very misogynistic. Um, Some of the resources that I read said that he actually called his mother and sister whore and the C word to their faces. And I can't imagine an Italian mother whose son called her the C word not having a very swift and violent reaction to that, but apparently she didn't. So because that particular uh, string of misogyny was within Angela Buono for his entire life. He had several marriages. Uh, His first marriage, his first son was born. He left the woman and refused to support the child or allow the child to call him dad. He married another woman, Mary Castillo, and he had several children with her, was abusive to her in front of the children. She finally left him and took the children with her, although one of them ended up coming back and living with his dad later. Um, He never supported his children, and he also is believed to have abused his children and sexually molested his own daughter. So he was a sick, sick, sick puppy even before 1977. No doubt about it. Um, Kenneth Bianchi was born also in Rochester, New York on May 22, 1951. His mother was a 17-year-old alcoholic prostitute who gave him up for adoption immediately, and at about three months of age... He was adopted by Nicholas and Francis Bianchi. Francis was Jenny's sister, making making Kenneth and Angelo first cousins. Um, That'll come into play. He was the only child. Um, Early life, he displayed some problems. Uh, His mother said that he was a chronic liar from the time he could speak. He had some medical issues related to um, not necessarily bedwetting, but he did have some urinary issues. And his mother took him for treatment, and so that was some pretty invasive procedures were involved in that. And while he paints the relationship with his mother and father as uh, loving and never any problems, they, you know, spoiled him rotten, it's believed that he also had some other issues because his mother didn't have a very high opinion of him, and there was a lot of strife between the two of them. He also had, at age five, was diagnosed with petty mal seizures uh, because he would seem to be daydreaming, his eyes would roll back in his head, and he just wouldn't be there. Um, But he supposedly would have gone out of that. He also displayed uh, temper issues and impulse control issues as a young child into his adolescent and early adulthood. When he was 13, his father died uh, suddenly of a heart attack, which meant that his mother had to go on to uh, go to work to support the family. And, Michael, when you get back, just give me a heads up. And um, so that led to a little bit less uh, influence of his mother in his life. He finished high school 
and got married early. That marriage ended very quickly. There was apparently a second marriage, and that one ended quickly. The women just couldn't take him and and left. Uh, He apparently uh, was not one of those people who believed in – he's one of those people who believed in do as I say, not as I do. So he was incredibly controlling and jealous with his wives and girlfriends, but he could go around and have as many affairs as he wanted to, and they didn't have any right to try to say anything about that. Um, He did want to be a police officer. He took some courses at a community college in an attempt to be a police officer in Monroe County, New York, but he was rejected. Uh, He went to work as a security guard for several employers, but he ended up losing those jobs at least once because he was caught with merchandise stolen from the business that he was supposed to be guarding. Um, And this uh, this is an example of Bianchi's inner con man. You know, he gets these jobs as a security guard. He seems to be uh, efficient and know what he's doing and, and really good at his job. But in the, you know, he's using it as a cover to steal his employer's blind. And that was fun for him. Yeah. I just wanted to let you know I'm back. My internet crashed, and unfortunately I'm going to have to do it on my phone because Blog Talk won't update, but I did want to let you know I am back. Did did we go off the air when the internet went down? No, no. You guys have been on, you've been on the air. I, I just dropped out for a little bit. Okay. Bless your little heart. All right. So, um, so then in 1976, Angel, uh, Kenneth moved to California and went to live with Angelo in Glendale, California, where Angelo, after some prison stints for non-support and theft and Grand Theft Auto, had actually seemed to be putting his life on the straight and narrow and had gotten uh, opened an upholstery business where he did car interiors, upholstery, carpets, et cetera, et cetera. Um, In California, the scale of Bianchi's scamming Uh, kind of increased because he was able to steal psychological credentials from someone and then set himself up as a psychologist using those stolen credentials. Luckily, even though he rented office space from a legitimate psychologist, luckily nobody used Kenneth's services. So So that was not a very lucrative profession for him. Yeah. I may be late to the party on figuring this out, but is it just something amongst criminals to use to to try to portray like a doctor or a somebody of authority to gain victims, or is that just me? Like, am I late to the party? Well, I I don't think I think what Kenneth saw it as as quick and easy cash, psychological treatment. But- to this day, is still not really covered under medical insurance. Really? And so patients will usually pay cash as they go. 
uh-huh. for counseling services. Mm-hmm. So it was easy cash. And at this point in time, he really wasn't looking for uh, – he was not looking for victims yet. He had just moved to right. California, and, and he was just – you know, he was just trying to pull a scam. Um, he started working for a title company, and that's when he began a relationship with a young woman by the name of Kelly Boyd. And they actually moved in together. So when he started working for the title company, he moved out of Angelo's house and moved into an apartment with Kelly Boyd. Now, Angelo, too, wanted to make quick and easy money. And so this is where Angelo's misogyny and Kenny's uh, desire for the scam meet and they decide that getting two girls and pimping them out is a way to make quick and easy money. So they find girls, one's named Becky, the other one's named Sabra or Sabra, and they bring them into Angelo's house and they keep them there. And then they start sending them out to have sex with men for money and they take the money. And Uh that goes on for a few months, and then Becky meets an attorney by the name of Wood. Um, Becky, with Wood's help, manages to escape. Once Becky escapes, Sabre realizes that it's not impossible, and she manages to escape. Um, Initially, Angelo was very upset, and he actually tried to threaten the attorney Wood. And the attorney Wood's response was to send a very large man to Angelo's house for a little chat with Angelo. And like the true coward that he is, he can't he can't take on a man. So he backs down. Wow. So then in late September, early October they meet a prostitute by the name of Deborah Noble, and they she offers to sell them a trick list, which is a list of men with phone numbers who use prostitutes. Mm-hmm. And so they can get another girl or another couple of girls, and they can set their own little outcall service up using this trick list to get clients. Mm-hmm. But when they get the... Deborah delivers the trick list to him, and Yolanda Washington is with Deborah at that time. Yolanda happens to tell Angelo and Bianchi that she works a certain part of Sunset Strip, um, which cost her her life. Uh, we're skipping a little ahead, but um, and they get the trick list. They go back, and then they discover that the trick list is a fake. None of the names are real. None of the phone numbers are real. They look for Deborah Noble for a while, and being not that bright and incredibly lazy, they go, they find Yolanda Washington on the Sunset Strip, and on October 17th, they uh, pick her up on the Sunset Strip, take her in Kenneth Bianchi's car, and while Angelo's driving, Kenneth Bianchi first has sex with her, then strangles her. Mm-hmm. 
and they dump her body near Forest Lawn on a hill uh, near Forest Lawn Cemetery in Los Angeles. Then less than or around two weeks later, October 30th, or sometime between late October 30th, early October 31st, they pick up uh, Judy Lynn Miller. And they've changed their M.O. Um, They pick up Judy Lynn Miller posing as cops. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. They stopped her at Carney's Restaurant at 8351 Sunset Boulevard, put her into their car, go back to to Buono's house, rape her, and then strangle her. And then Mm -hmm. dump her body on a hillside in La Crescenta, on October 31st. Um, really? Yeah. Then on November 6th, which is about a week later, uh, one of the things that worried officers or, or investigators is that these murders were so close together. Well, yeah. Usually in a series, you go a little bit longer between murders. Um, I think it was like maybe 13 days between Yolanda and Judith. Now, the other thing, when Judith was found, she had no identification, um, so she remained unidentified in the morgue. Um, Then they picked up Alyssa Teresa, who went by Lissa Caston who was a dancer and waitress who worked in North Hollywood. Um, She met up with the Stranglers while she was driving home from her restaurant, and they picked her up somewhere on the freeways in Los Angeles, again, probably using the police ruse. They had fake police badges. Um, They drove – Kenneth's car was a Cadillac, but it was blue on white, so it looked like an unmarked police car. Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, it was, a, it was a GM, and it was at a time when, when GM was, you know, they kind of all looked alike with, with minor differences. Um, right. Her like body was found. Down. Correct. Correct. Where it used to be Crown Victorious. Yeah, I remember Crown Vicks, too. <laughs> um, but anyway... So uh, they, they, like I said, picked her up driving home, um, took her again to Angelo's. Um, one of the things that they were able to do at Angelo's was they were able to wash the bodies prior to dumping them, which left very little evidence, although some evidence, like Judith Miller had a piece of fluff on her eyelashes or on one of her eyes. And that was, you know, collected, but until they have something to compare that to, there's not going to be a connection. So it's not going to tell them who who committed the murder. Um, Lissa was found on a highway embankment near the the Chevy Chase Country Club in Glendale. And then the next two murders are um, 
the well, okay, the next victim, uh, not too long after Lissa, or all, potential victim, was a young woman by the name of Catherine Lori, Lori Baker. Catherine was the daughter of actor Peter Lori. Uh, Bianchi and Buono pulled her over. When they went through her wallet, they saw a picture of her, of her with her father, and they decided to let her go. Uh, which is interesting. Um, she came forward once they were both arrested. She realized what what had happened, and and she came forward. Um, the okay. next two are the ones that are are the most heinous of all the murders they committed. Um, Dolores Cepeda and Sonia Johnson. They were young, maybe middle school girls. They had gone to the Eagle Rock Mall in Eagle Rock, California. They took a bus home, and they were last seen next to a two-tone sedan talking to someone on the passenger side of the car. A week later, their bodies were found in Elysian Park near Dodger Stadium. Um, They had badly decomposed, but they were able to determine that they had both been raped. Dolly was 12, and Sonia was 14. Because this is kind of a departure from the early victims, did they automatically think Hillside Strangler in this case? Or because, I mean, dang. Oh, I I skipped this portion, and I, I, I neglected to say this. When Lissa Caston was found, they still had Judy, Judith Miller's body in the um, morgue. And right. Yolanda, Judith, and Lissa were all Los Angeles Sheriff's Department. And what when they like looked they at Li- – well, the, that was the jurisdiction – where their bodies were left oh, gotcha. was within okay. sheriff's department's jurisdiction. Okay, so the sheriff's department investigators are looking at Lissa's body. Lissa's body, they see the ligature around the neck, and then the ligature marks on the wrists and ankles, and they realize we've seen this pattern before. They pull Judith Miller's pattern, you know, Judith Miller, and she's got the same five-point restraint. Neck, wrists, and ankles. Um, so did Dolly and um, Sonia. I believe they were found within Los Angeles police territory. Really? Okay. Now, so so far are they working together? Like, is the Los Angeles police looking at this and saying, oh, well, shit, well, these two once, once they, once, I think it was Dolly and Sonia, once they were, uh, once Los Angeles Police Department was involved, they started working together. And I have to get, you have to say this, Frank Grogan or John Grogan, I think his name was John Grogan, and Frank Salerno 
who were the lead investigators, Grogan on LAPD and Salerno on um, L.A. Sheriff, they did not um, they did not act as though there was a long-standing rivalry between the two agencies. They both got together and they shared information with each other. Good. Another thing is while the press was saying Hillside Strangler singular, police knew with Yolanda and Judith and Lissa and later uh, Dolores and Sonia, they knew that one person could not have placed the bodies in the manner that they were placed in the locations where they were placed. I think Lissa cast in there was a guardrail. So it would have taken two people to take her over the guardrail and go place her body where it was placed. So, you know, they knew it was two people. So they knew they were looking for two people. But they weren't they weren't getting a lot of clues. Because there was no forensic evidence left behind. Um, if they had sperm, although I doubt they did because they were washing the bot. Borno and Bianchi were washing the bodies. Um, it was not secreter. Mm-hmm. So the blood type was not present in the sperm in the 1970s uh, testing methods. Um, their next victim was a young woman by the name of Christina Weckler. She was a student at Pasadena Art and Center of Design. She lived on Garfield Avenue in the same building, I believe, where Kenneth Bianchi was living with Kelly Boyd. Damn. So, I mean, did they both so, get him out of the same? I, I, I think he picked Christina Weckler out. And again, they used the police ruse. They would tell these women that we need to take you to the station and ask you some questions. And so, and like Nobody I said, she lives in the same building. Though, no, that was a ruse. I, mean, I, I was about to say, I realized back then that people trusted the police a lot more than they do today, but man, I'd be asking questions automatically if I knew nothing I had done was wrong. Well, no, I think that had any of the – well, I think the only victim – one victim did do that. We'll get to her in a minute. <laughs> but any of these victims who did that, Angela would have just hit them. I mean, you know, asking questions was not uh, – you know, they're, they're – one, I think Judith Miller did argue with them mm-hmm. and just say, I'm not doing anything. I didn't do anything. Right. But, you know, it did her absolutely no good because they forced her into the car and took her. Evelyn Jane King was the next victim. She was the oldest of all the victims. Uh, She was born on the 20th of October in 1949 in Arizona. She was living in Los Angeles. She was an aspiring actress. She had been at an acting class at the Scientology Center. And disappeared after class on the evening of November 9th, 
1977. Her body was found, oh, yeah, on November 10th, 1977. Her body wasn't found until November 23rd, um, off on an off ramp on the Golden State Freeway. So, um, and this is actually when the task force was formed the Hillside Strangler Task Force with Los Angeles Police, Los Angeles Sheriff, and Glendale Police because some of the bodies have been discovered in Glendale. And the next victim was Lauren Ray Wagner. Um, She was on her way home from a a college class or an evening out with friends. She was less than a block from her house. She lived with her parents when a sedan pulled her car over and she was taken out of her car and forced into the sedan and the sedan drove away. There was an eyewitness. The eyewitness heard her ask to go get her father That was denied, and then as she was being forced in the car, the witness heard her tell the people, you're not going to get away with this. Um, That was on December 29th, 1977, and her body, I don't have the location of where her body was found. Right. Um. But yes, yeah, she was found on another hillside somewhere in you know the the metropolitan Los Angeles area. And then the next victim was on December 14, 1977, Kimberly Diane Martin. Um, she was the ninth victim. She was a 17-year-old working for an alcohol service when she was called to 1950 Tamarind, which is in Hollywood. Uh, this is a building that Kenneth Bianchi lived in at one time. She was murdered in an empty apartment, and her body was dr- dumped uh, at on Alvarado Street near Echo Park. And I believe, if I recall the, the sequence correctly, her body was at, within sight of Los Angeles City Hall. And once again, she... They could have looked out and seen it, yeah. Yeah. And from her, from her, where her body was, you could see City Hall. And I think Parker Center, which is police headquarters. So this was the statement. Well, yeah, probably something of a statement. Um, again, we'll get into we'll get into that um, a little bit as, as we move along. <laughs> so, right. uh, the final victim was a young woman named Cindy Lee Hudspeth, and. She was killed on February 16, 1978. Her body was put into the trunk of her Datsun 
Angeles Crest Highway. So there's a bit of a departure from the motive or from the the MO and the signature. And it may be that um, there was some tension developing between Bianchi and Buono because uh, Bianchi was an exuberant and um, talkative person and he wanted a lot of attention and Buono was the more criminally sophisticated keep your freaking mouth shut or we're going to get caught. Um, so, so always, there's one that falls short and uh, ends up running his mouth. Correct, and you know we'll we'll see that and we'll see that in a little bit. Um, so yeah, I don't understand now. The other, the one thing that um, I didn't find anything to confirm, but there was something I read, kind of a speculation that Cindy took her vehicle to Buono and that's how she came in contact with Buono and Bianchi but I don't have anything that confirms that or anything official that that corroborates that theory because hers like I said she's really different um, as far as how her body was how her body was dumped and I think the vehicle and the body were meant to never be found based on the way that they pushed the body, the, the vehicle off cliff. Hmm. So um, they suddenly February, 1978 there, they stopped. Um, like I said, I think there was some um, dispute Discord brewing. Uh, Bianchi, sometime shortly after uh, Cindy Hudspeth was killed, Bianchi actually was questioned by LAPD because the mother of a, a former girlfriend of his said he sounded like he could be the hillside strangler to her because he had scammed her daughter. Oh, shit. <laughs> and you know the his vehicle fit the description. Um, I think also another problem may have also been that Bianchi's vehicle at some point was repossessed. Damn. So um, that may have been why Cindy Hudspeth they came in contact with her in a different way. And they disposed of her body in the in in its vehicle, in her vehicle, rather than leaving her vehicle somewhere and disposing of her body out in the open the way they disposed of all the others. Um, she was victim ten, and um, then Bianchi lost a job with the title company because he was caught with pot in his desk, and he's also caught lying about having cancer. He had been missing work a lot, saying, I'm having cancer treatment. They make me sick. So um, at that time, Kelly Boyd, who had just given birth to their son, 
decided to move back to her family in Bellingham, Washington. So she leaves Los Angeles and goes to Bellingham. Also, around this time, sometime I think it was in April, Bianchi went on a ride-along with LAPD. And the officer with whom he rode said that he wanted to go see the Hillside Strangler sites. And then, being the dumbass with a big mouth that he is, he goes to Angelo, huh? I said red flag anybody? Yeah. He goes to Angelo and he tells Angelo, I was questioned by the LAPD and they don't suspect a thing. And I went on a ride along and they don't suspect a thing. Uh, Bianchi apparently tested with a 116 IQ, which is high average, but he thinks he's smarter than everybody else and superior to everybody else because he's such a good scammer. Um, so they, he and he and Buono have a falling out. I mean, Buono loses his shit because he knows Bianchi's going to get him caught one way or the other. So he right. actually pulls a gun and tells Bianchi to get off his property, get out of his house, and never contact him again. So. Um, Bianchi decides to go ahead and move to Bellingham, Washington, where he's able to secure a job with a – first, he initially works as a security guard for a department store called Mm -hmm. Fred Myers, and then he goes to work for Watcom Security Company, where he actually scams himself into a supervisor position. Mm, okay. And while he's working for Watcom, he's stealing from their clients. Because when there was a search warrant of his residence, a lot of stolen goods were found. Some of them stolen from customers of Watcom and some of them stolen from other places. Um, mm-hmm. But in January of 1979... He hires a young woman who worked with him at Fred Myers named Karen Mandick to watch a house while the security system is out of service being replaced and the residents of the house are uh, out of town on vacation or whatever. And mm-hmm. so he offers to pay her $100 to spend a couple of hours at the house while the security system's down. Um. He tells her, don't tell anybody, because if you tell anybody, then they'll come rob the house. But Karen uh, leaves a note at her apartment that gives the address of the house, and Ken Bianchi's business card is also found in Karen's apartment. Additionally, when she goes to the house, she brings her roommate, Diane Wilder, with her. Mm Mm-hmm. And so Bianchi's like, okay, no big deal. I'll pay you both $100. And um, another thing Bianchi had done is that he had kind of scrubbed his connection to the house 
in Watcom's records. Right. And he'd also managed to keep other employees from Watcom from getting near the records. I think he even uh, erased any news or any any reference to the uh, owners being out of town. Or it may have been a house under construction. Uh, it's it's not real clear. Anyway, so they go in the house. Uh, the power is off. And so Bianchi takes Karen down to the basement to find the circuit box. And strangles her. And apparently rapes her as well. And then he goes and gets Diane and brings Diane down to the basement, rapes and strangles her. He puts Karen, in, after redressing them, puts Karen and Diane's bodies back into the trunk of Karen's car, which was a Mercury Bobcat, which basically is the Mercury version of the Pinto. Right. And... um Although you probably don't even know what a pinto is. <laughs> Somewhat. I've got an idea in my head. Hold and on. then he, he, he takes Karen's vehicle and abandons it in a wooded area. Oh, that's not bad. And that's goes and gets his van. Except some of them exploded when you rear-ended them. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. The pinto was one of the first vehicles I drove my grandmother had one and after I got my driver's license when I went up to Delaware she let me drive for her Pinto to go to the grocery store and do stuff like that Mm -hmm. it was really cool it I was used to a car with automatic um steering and that had rack Mm -hmm. and pinion steering so you had to mm-hmm. uh, 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 turn. <laughs> it was very hard to turn. You didn't just touch the wheel and give it a little bit of left and it went, you know. You had to really right. take grab that steering wheel and pull. So um, later that evening, this was on January 11th, 1979. Uh, later that evening, Karen's boyfriend reports her missing. Because she had told him that she was going to be house-sitting for a couple of hours, and she'd call him when she was done. And she didn't call him. So um, the Bellingham police go to question Bianchi because she had told the boyfriend it's for Kenny at Whatcom Security. He used to work at Fred Myers. So they go question Bianchi, and Bianchi says, I don't know, I don't know Karen Mandig, don't have any idea who she is, don't know Diane Wilder, no, I've never been to that house, I have no idea where it is, you got the wrong guy, gee, I hope they're okay. And he came across very genuine and believable. And so police continued, you know, looking, and that's when they go to Karen's apartment and they discover the address for the house, the abandoned house. They go there. They find nothing, uh, not abandoned, but under construction or, or unoccupied at the time. And then 
they get a report of a vehicle abandoned in the wooded area, and that's when they discover Karen and Diane's bodies in the back of the vehicle. So then they've got more information linking Ken Bianchi to Karen and and Diane. He's lied to them about knowing Karen and Diane. And so they decide to bring him in and question him again. Wee hours of the morning. And um, this time when they question him, even though he denies any involvement, they realize that he had to be the one that was involved. And they're finding some physical evidence at the at the house and in the car that and in his van that link him, you know, link the three scenes together. So he is arrested by police in Bellingham that day. He's also found in possession of stolen goods. So they've got him on the stolen goods and they're gonna develop the murder case against him. Um, of course, initially, he's like, no, somebody's setting me up. This can't be. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know what's going on. This is, you know, not fair. Y'all are being mean. And um, the Bellingham detectives then, and this isn't on the outline, I apologize. Uh, they then start making the connections to Los Angeles. Or find Bianchi's connections to Los Angeles. So they reach out to the recently disbanded task force, and I believe they got Frank Salerno when they called. And so Salerno came up to Washington State to talk to Bianchi. And do you want to go ahead and do the break real quick? Because I think we're at a pretty good stopping place. Because it's, it's going to get even more confusing. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to uh, Clear and Convincing with Michael Carnahan and Lisa O'Brien. We'll be right back after this.
to you by the Arkansas Wrestling Organization. See Arkansas favorites like Cataclysm, Ace of Morta, the original Misfit, Josh Cross, Suicide King, Ray Ray, Insane Shane, and current AWO champion D-Mike. As they battle for redemption this Saturday in Ola at 307 West Hill Street. Doors open at 530. Concessions will be available. And this is a family-friendly show with kids under six getting in free. It's Redemption. Brought to you by the Arkansas Wrestling Organization. Are you looking for the best deals for your vaping needs and accessories? Then check out the guys at Sub-Ohm Vapors. With daily specials on a wide selection of mods and juices, they will surely become your one-stop shop. Ray and the guys at Sub-Ohm Vapors located at 6929 JFK Boulevard, Suite C in North Little Rock, Arkansas. Want to see you? Join them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. But more importantly, visit the store or call 501-392-6487. Sub-Ohm Vapors. Vape it like you built it. that Stevie Wonder song. I know, right? I was sitting there jamming. Yeah. We had, uh, I think it was in eighth grade, we had to do these dance routines in gym class. And that was the song that my group got. And so I've always loved it. I love the the line, um, when you're hanging out with the friends and your mom yells out the back door, you try to bring the water to your eyes hoping that'll keep her from whooping you behind. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's one of my favorite songs. It was big in 1977. Mm-hmm. So, oh, all right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Stevie Wonder, he is timeless. He really is. All right. Um, so, Kenneth Bianchi is in being held in Whatcom County, Washington, for the murders of Karen Mandick and Diane Wilder. He is tied to those murders. I mean, there's no way it could be anybody else. Even though he believes just saying I didn't do it is going to convince everybody because he's a slick con man. His attorney is faced with a client who is going to get the death penalty. So like no his attorney wants – pardon? Like no bones about it, yeah, this is death penalty. Correct. 
And so his attorney wants to save his life. And he thinks maybe he can get a uh, get him found to be incompetent at the time of the murders, or if they're lucky, incompetent to even stand trial. So he brings in the psychologists and psychiatrists. And remember, Kenneth Bianchi had been pretending to be a psychologist, and. In his cell, he had a lot of psychological material, textbooks and articles and things like that. So he's meeting with a social worker, and the social worker apparently suggests that maybe you just don't remember doing this. And he's also looking at a potential death penalty case in California. Because he's been tied, Yolanda Washington, uh, jewelry belonging to Yolanda Washington and um, one of the other victims, Lauren Wagner, has been found in his apartment in Washington. His girlfriend has told police that he was best friends in Los Angeles with his cousin, Angela Buono. So Kenneth is in a lot of trouble. Lack of insight, he doesn't recognize just how much. So he takes the suggestion that maybe he doesn't remember, and he runs with it. And they bring in a psychologist or a psychiatrist who hypnotizes him. And during one of the hypnosis sessions, a second personality emerges. Right on cue. And the second personality identifies himself as Steve Walker and hates Kenneth's guts and starts pointing out which victims he murdered and which victims Angelo Borna murdered. And so under the guise of having multiple personality disorder, which is now uh, dissociative identity disorder, um, Kenneth Bianchi confesses to the Washington murders. Steve Walker did it, not Kenneth Bianchi. And um, the Hillside Strangler murders in Los Angeles. Um, I think Ken also thought that if an alternate personality was the one responsible, he could not be convicted and punished. Um, Because the attorney in Washington wanted to use an insanity defense, Mm -hmm. um, he had to turn everything over to the prosecutor, who then could bring in his own experts. And whose experts had a right to meet with and examine Kenneth Bianchi. One of the state's experts in meeting with Bianchi suggests that it's very unusual for there to be only two personalities, that you usually see three or more personalities. So right on cue, during a hypnosis session, the character of a child, Billy, emerges. And um, then during, you know, during another hypnosis session, the expert tells Kenneth, 
your attorney's next to you. And Kenneth gives himself away because he interacts with the hallucination. And a person under hypnosis would not do that. Right. So, um, and then Salerno remembers the name Steve Walker because they had found the credentials from Steve Walker, the psychologist or psychological university degrees and things like that. So basically Kenneth Bianchi used a real person's name for an alternate personality. Oh dear God! Why so, didn't he try to say somebody? Pardon? Why didn't he just Kaiser so say something? He's he thinks he's smart, but he's not. He's not that smart. Uh-huh. He really, he really and truly is not that smart. He's slick and he's, um, you know, he's uh, a quick talker, but. He doesn't have any insight, and he doesn't have any any analytical capabilities. Say, if I do this, the, you know, this is the outcome. So he's just flying by the seat of his pants. So uh-huh. the California scam basically comes back and bites Kenneth in the ass. Uh-huh. So once his multiple personality diagnosis is blown and he's found competent to stand trial in Washington and he's been charged with all the murders in California, he decides to confess and to implicate Angelo Buono and to provide corroboration that gives probable cause for Buono's arrest in California. And it was in October, I believe in October of 1979, that Buono was finally arrested in Glendale. And, of course, Buono is, you know, he's not going to talk to anybody, even his own attorneys. So, um, and once they search Buono's a home and, and shop, they find similar fibers to the ones that were found on Miller and Lauren Wagner. And um, they find that, you know, Bianchi had lived near Wexler and Hudspeth. Um, Bianchi was in possession of jewelry from Yolanda, Washington. It was Kelly Mar- uh, with, with uh, Martin, not uh, Wagner, who's jewelry Kenneth had and they had also had at the time Martin was murdered they had a call to her out call service from the Los Angeles Public Library but they didn't know who had made the call and once Buono was arrested a young woman came forward and said Buono made the call and while he was in the library using the payphone he terrorized me. And she picked him out of a lineup. There was a, an eyewitness to uh, Christina Weck, um, I mean, Lauren Wagner's abduction. 
And um, the witness to that also picked Bianchi and Buono out of a lineup. So they're pretty much, you know, they're pretty much done. Um, and then I have I have two things in the wrong order. Uh, Bianchi decided to enter plea agreements in Washington, California, to avoid the death penalty because he was eligible for death penalty in both states. He entered a plea to the murders of Karen Mandic and Diane Wilder in Washington, and then he entered a plea in California to five of the Hillside Strangler murders. Although I'm not sure which five. Um, Yolanda Washington for sure because he is the one who strangled her Um, it may have been only the five that he identified while claiming to be Steve Walker as women that he murdered so they, they didn't charge him or they dropped charges in the murders that were actually physically done by Angelo Buono Um, part of the plea agreement, he would get life sentences in Washington and California to be served consecutively, but both would have the possibility of parole. And he also was, yeah. I have a question and I don't know if this has ever happened, but let's say he didn't make this plea. Let's go off into, you know, fantasy land. Let's say he doesn't make this plea and gets death penalty in both states. How does that work? Yes. Is it just uh, whoever kills them first? No. It uh, what? Well, what he would be eligible for the death penalty in Washington for multiple murders, uh, heinous and cruel. There were a few. There were a few aggravating factors in the murders uh-huh. in both California and Washington, and just the multiple victims alone is an aggravating factor that would make him eligible for the death penalty. Right, but if he got both death and both, who would have got to kill him is what I'm asking. Well, it it would probably have been... Like, how did um, they decide? It probably would have been... Washington would have had custody of him first. Okay. (laughs) But, you know, actually, in... Okay, let's look at it. If he had not entered a plea in Washington and he'd been tried, convicted, and sentenced to death in Washington, uh-huh. he probably would not have been tried in California. Okay. All right. He would have only been tried in California if the case in Washington fell apart and he was acquitted or he was sentenced to less than death in, in Washington. Okay. And then he would have been sent to California to be tried. Okay. All right. Um, Now, that would be with the confessions and the admissions. Hmm. Uh, But, yeah, it would would really depend. Um, But, yeah, Washington had him. And they would have probably tried him first. And if he was sentenced to death in Washington, California would have uh, just tried him if the death sentence was 
somehow overturned and commuted right. to life, and then they'd say, okay, we want to draw him now. And Washington probably would have said, here, have fun. Okay. <laughs> but another term of the plea agreement was that his time would be served in California. And that he would only serve time in Washington if he was granted parole in California. So this was more of a – the two states came to the table and said, hey, here's the bargain. You know, Correct. I'm going to give you this, this. Okay. Correct. Correct. Because they did need Bianchi's testimony against Borno. Okay. To try Buono. Um, and we'll get to that in a, in a couple minutes. Now, the next thing that happened is while Bianchi was in jail in Los Angeles waiting for Buono's uh, during the proceedings against Buono, and they were long because he was arrested in 79, um, he met a woman by the name of um, Veronica Compton. And Veronica started writing to him, and she wanted to interview him to get input on a screenplay that she was working on about a female serial killer. Uh Uh-huh. And he manipulated her, and she fell in love with him, and then they came up with a plan that she would murder a woman in Bellingham. It would look like the Hillside Strangler was still active. And that they had the wrong guys. Huh. And because Bianchi was a non-secretor, she was going to plant sperm from Bianchi on the victim in Bellingham. Oh, damn. Right, okay. Okay. So she goes to a bar one night, and she's not real sure about, you know, this whole plan. So she drinks a lot, and she apparently used a lot of cocaine. She lures, she's posing as a pregnant woman. She lures a bartender to a hotel room or motel room and gets the woman to come into the room and then attacks her with the intent of strangling or murdering her and planting sperm on her. Right. Well, the woman that she picked was a part-time bartender and apparently a full-time employee of like the department uh, Washington Department of Natural Resources. She uh-huh. was an arborist. She dealt with trees. So she was a strong, strong girl. Right. And she apparently whooped Veronica's ass. And Veronica fled and went to California. But when Veronica got to San Francisco Airport, She caused some sort of a scene and was arrested and was very quickly, very shortly linked to the attack in Bellingham on the bartender. Uh Uh-huh. And so, and then once she was caught, she confessed everything about her plot with Bianchi. He basically wanted to try and exonerate himself and Buono at that point. Right. Um. And I think he killed. Uh, I think he killed Karen Mandic and Diane Wilder to show Angelo how smart he was, and how he didn't need Angelo to kill people. 
So, uh, yeah. So, uh, sometime after this occurs, um, Bianchi is called to testify at Buono's preliminary hearing. And he gives conflicting testimony. And I, mm-hmm. there's another another incident that I forgot to put on the outline, and I'm sorry again. Um, so after Bianchi's testimony, where he says, I don't remember, I, I lied about the multiple personality disorder, but I don't think either Angela or I did anything, and this is all a big mistake, and you got the wrong guys. Um, the district attorney in for Los Angeles County wanted to dismiss the case. Now, Buono's attorneys had tried to get the case dismissed, and then the district attorney filed a motion dismissing the charges against Buono to let him go. Mm-hmm. And everyone thought that the judge, Judge George, would do that because judges usually, if the prosecution doesn't want to pursue a case, the judges kind of rubber stamp that decision. Well, Judge George takes the motion under advisement, and then he comes back a few days later, and he says there's excuse me, sufficient evidence to uh, bind Buono over for trial, and if the Los Angeles County District Attorney doesn't want to handle the case, then the Attorney General's office, uh, George Dukmajian, will come in, and they will handle the case. And they reviewed everything, and they uh, they agreed to handle the case. So the, the Attorney General's office stepped in and took over the prosecution. Of uh, Bono. Additionally, Bianchi was warned after the preliminary hearing testimony that he was violating the terms of his plea agreement. Okay. And that that was a big mistake. And so when it came time for trial, he needed to honor the terms of the agreement to testify fully completely, honestly, against Angelo Buono. And, of course, Ken, con man that he is, like, yeah, yeah, sure, okay, yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> yeah, of course. So uh, some more time passes. It took a long time to get Angelo Buono to trial. Uh, there were uh, There was a motion by Buono to get notes and testimony from Bianchi's counsel the, at the public defender's office in California and the public defender's office in Washington to get more information about the um, the competency evaluations, the plea negotiations, uh, the admissions, the tapes, and all those things. Initially, that was granted. I don't know whether it was Judge George or whether it was an earlier judge. Um, but the California Supreme Court reversed that order and right. basically found that what Buono's counsel was seeking was available by other means and that they didn't need to basically violate confidentiality 
in order to obtain the information that they were looking for. That that they were trying to violate confidentiality for a fishing expedition. Huh. Okay. <clears throat> so um, jury selection began, I think, in November of eighty one. Mm-hmm. And jury selection alone took three months. Damn. The jury was also sequestered. There were additional delays because every time Warner's counsel lost on an issue, they would appeal, and that would result in a delay of the trial. But I believe once the jury was impaneled and sequestered, they were stuck. Um, the prosecution case. Bianchi was on the stand for a few months and once again gave conflicting testimony and tried to um, exonerate Buono on cross-examination. Right. And But in addition to all the you know fibers and the other evidence corroborating Bianchi's, Bianchi's testimony – um, they also had the multiple witnesses. They had Becky and Sabre Hannon, Becky Spears and Sabre Hannon, Catherine uh-huh. Baker, Beulah Stouffer, the witness who saw uh, Lauren Wagner's abduction, and the young woman who was terrorized at the library. Um, they had over 250 witnesses. Damn. And another account that I read said 400 witnesses, but that may have been, you know, pre-trial and trial. Um, the defense case was pretty sparse, <clears throat> with Bianchi's testimony and the and the corroboration. There really, you know, wasn't a lot for them to go on, and Buono wouldn't cooperate with his lawyers. Um, that was his biggest mistake. Um, okay. Veronica Compton testified and Veronica Compton tried to exonerate Borno by claiming that she and Bianchi schemed to frame Borno of course on rebuttal the prosecution was pretty quickly able to prove that uh, Compton didn't meet Bianchi until long after he'd been in prison so she couldn't have been involved in a scheme at the time of the murders in Los Angeles, um, which I think was what her testimony was. There aren't a lot of – there are no appellate opinions available for either Bianchi or Buono. So right. piecing together what the testimony was is kind of difficult because you have to go by um, secondary sources rather than primary sources. But there is a great book written by Darcy O'Brien called Two of a Kind, The Uh Hellified Stranglers. It's a great book. You should read it because it goes through the murders, the relationship between Bianchi and Buono, and the trial, and all the ups and downs and and crazy stuff that happened. Um, So eventually it was about two years and finally, the jury was given the case, and they went in to deliberate. Their verdicts actually came 
at different times. They they initially deliberated and came back with a guilty verdict as to the murder of Lauren Wagner. Mm-hmm. They went back to deliberate. They came back with a not guilty verdict as to the murder of Yolanda Washington. Really? Okay. And that may have been because Bianchi strangled her. Angelo Buono didn't actually... And Angelo, Angelo Buono was driving the car while Bianchi was with Yolanda. So Angelo was an accessory or an accomplice, but he didn't actually kill Yolanda. Right. You know, again, I I don't know what evidence they had. Um, Bianchi is the only one that possessed jewelry from Yolanda. No evidence was found on Yolanda's body linking her to Borno's shop because they never went to his shop. And then they went back and deliberated and finally came back with guilty verdicts as to Judas Miller, Dolores Cepeda, Sonia Johnson, Kimberly Martin, Christina Weckler, Lisa Caston, Jane King, and Cindy Hudspeth. After Borno was convicted, he allocuted, which means he gave a, made a statement, but he was not testifying and he was not cross-examined. And that statement was something along the lines of his life and his constitutional rights had been violated. Huh. And the jury then, they had the sentencing hearing and the jury deliberated and they came back, and even though Buono was eligible because of multiple murders for the death penalty, the jury sentenced him to life without the possibility of parole because Bianchi was serving a life sentence. Huh. Okay. Um, and then Bianchi was had a, um, a rude awakening – he was basically told by Judge George and the DA, uh, you didn't honor the terms of the plea agreement, so we're not going to honor the terms of the plea agreement, and you're going to go back to Washington and serve your time there. And if Washington paroles you, then you can come to California and serve the rest of your time in California. Okay, and obviously okay. happy no, he's not happy about it, but he violated the terms of his plea agreement. Right, he did absolutely. not testify completely. He didn't testify honestly. So, you know, you you dance with the devil, you got to pay. Right. And, you know, some people speculate that he didn't want to be the reason Bono was convicted because then he would be a rat in jail. In prison. Right. But if when Buono went to Folsom initially, he never left his cell because he was afraid of what the other inmates were going to do to him. Because two of the victims were 12 and 14, and other victims were 15, 16, and 17. Mm hmm. 
And Buono actually had probably some pedophilic tendencies because he abused a stepdaughter. He abused his own daughter. And he was also at one time allegedly caught looking out a window at kids on a playground masturbating. Oh, Jesus. He was a deviant, big-time deviant. Um, So... Uh, so Bianchi went to Washington. Buono filed a direct appeal, and his conviction and sentence were affirmed with modification by the California Supreme Court. But I don't know what that's about because the decision is unpublished. Okay. And then Bianchi has been eligible for parole in California. And Washington, and he has repeatedly tried to get parole in California and Washington, um, and he has been denied repeatedly. Um, he's been denied multiple times in California, and he's been denied multiple times in Washington, and apparently there was some change to Washington law, and the prosecutor in Bellingham or in Whatcom County actually wrote a letter to the parole board suggesting that Bianchi's um, term should be 1,800 months, which is over 150 years, or like 150, you know, around 150 years before he's even eligible for parole, uh, that he's, you know, going to be a continuing danger to society, um, can't be rehabilitated and uh-huh. deserves to spend the rest of his life in prison. Right. Bianchi initially in the California parole attempts, initially in the first couple of attempts, he did admit his involvement in the murders. And he tried to claim he saw the error of his ways, he found Jesus or I, well, I don't know. So he's he's become a Seventh Day Adventist, which is kind of like uh, the Mormons. So he found Joseph Smith, God. and uh, or God, or whatever. Although they were never missing, they were always there. Um, you know, he was he supposedly was a good Catholic boy, um, and um, then later. He began trying to kind of reinvent the wheel and claim that his, you know, his admissions and confessions were false. He was tricked. Uh, Important information was withheld from his attorneys in Washington, California, which, you know, kept them from investigating his case. And he never would have been convicted if he'd gone to trial. And so he deserves to get out. And, you know, that kind of patter to the parole board really does you more harm than good. Right. Especially when your initial attempts you admitted responsibility. Yeah, admitting fault. So, um, in September of 2002, Angelo Buono died in Calpatria State Prison of a heart attack. He was 67. Um, it does not appear that he ever filed any 
federal or state post-conviction claims. So he just pretty much is like, screw it, I'm dead. Okay. He well, no, he probably was a, um, you know, he probably accepted that he was a prisoner. And nobody was going to help, and he kept right. his head down and did his time. He was transferred uh, to Calpatria sometime in the 90s from Folsom. Right. Folsom is a tough, tough prison. Right, absolutely. I if, mean, if, you recall, if you recall, that's where the late Merle Haggard met the late Johnny Cash. Yeah, I was about to say. I mean, come on now. You hear about Folsom and you hear about San Quentin. It's San Quentin, Folsom, and Pelican Bay. Yeah, Pelican Bay as well. Is the, Those are the three, you know, big bad ones. Um, right. So he died in 2002. And then Bianchi has kept up a pretty steady stream of state and federal post-conviction claims as well as state and federal civil rights claims. Uh, In the state and federal post-conviction, he's constantly changing the story. Um, He's saying, like I said, that, that investigators got his confessions and went and investigated them and found that they were all false that his the the psychologist and his attorney and the social worker all are the ones that suggested that he had multiple personalities and that the hypnosis made him pretend to have multiple personalities even though he didn't oh lord it's always something and um yeah, and, and it is. It's it's everybody else's fault. And, you know, it's kind of funny because when you look at it, the only person who would have benefited from a, benefited from a successful multiple personality defense would have been Kenneth Bianchi. Yeah. Right. And Angelo Buono. If he'd been ruled incompetent, to stand trial and incompetent to be convicted, he would have been incompetent to testify against Angelo Buono. So even though he was implicating Angelo Buono in all these murders, there would have been nothing that anybody could do because they wouldn't have had the evidence that they needed to um, even have probable cause to arrest him. So that one doesn't work. Um. He's also alleging alleged uh, ineffective assistance of counsel because they didn't investigate, even though, again, they were faced with trying to save his life. He's the one that gave them multiple personality, and they thought, yay, great insanity defense. Yay, there won't even be a trial. And then he got busted because he's the one that, it, that used a real person's identity or a real person's name as one of his alters. Not to mention, he freaking came up with personalities on demand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And bless his heart, there was uh, 
there was a show like Murder Made Me Famous or Mugshots or one of those true crime shows that um, the first doctor who discovered the multiple personalities wholeheartedly believes that Kenneth Bianchi suffers from multiple personality disorder or associated with identity disorder. And he doesn't care what the state experts say about all the indicators that Bianchi was faking. He was faking being hypnotized. You know, um, and that's another issue. And it's kind of um, Bianchi. It is the popular. Everybody's lying but me. Stance. And also um, the reinventing the history and the facts. For example, there was in 2015, Bianchi had some correspondence with somebody, I think about a potential documentary or a potential interview for a true crime show. And during his correspondence, he claimed that he didn't live with uh, Angelo for long and that he never saw Angelo during the time of the murders. Even though we've got Kelly Boyd telling uh, LAPD or LA Sheriff's detectives that Kenny was with Angelo all the time when they lived in Los Angeles. He says Angelo was a distant cousin, even though Angelo's mother and Kenneth's adopted mother are sisters, which makes them first cousins. Those are the closest cousins that you get. Right. (laughs) Okay. You know, um... I come from you know, my my mother's family. Her parents are both from large families, so I've got second and third and fourth cousins all over the place between the two families. Uh, but my first cousins are Lainey, Richard, and Robert, who are the children of my mother's two brothers. And those are my first cousins. And I have no first cousins on my dad's side because he was an only child. So, um, yeah, it's crazy. I I found today, again, I keep finding this resource that I forget when I'm doing my initial research. And I'm going to remember not to do that, (laughs) to go to this place first. Um. He, you know, he's filing these challenges. He's filed challenges to um, the because of the district attorney in Whatcom sending a letter to the parole board that says you need to keep him in prison until he dies. And you know that's a due process violation because at the time he was sentenced, that was not what life in prison meant. And um, everything has been dismissed or denied. Right. And he's tried filing successive petitions. 
uh, raising new facts, but the facts don't. The facts that he raises don't really have any impact on his guilt or innocence. And so, and he probably will continue doing so, um, because you know he's in prison and he's got time on his hands, and he wants right. out. Um, so he's filed multiple personal restraint petitions, which is kind of the post-conviction in Washington State. He also filed um, a civil rights complaint seeking lost wages from the authorities in Washington, from the district attorney and the um, Bellingham Police Department mm-hmm. and Whatcom County. Because they are the reason he's in prison and not earning, you know, bunches and bunches of money. Even though with his employment history prior to being in prison, he was never going to earn bunches and bunches of money because he was going to go from job to job to job and never quite, you know, (laughs) because he can't conform. He's an antisocial personality. Right. Okay, um, plain and simple, he is an antisocial personality. Um, so he can't conform his behavior to the norms uh, that others do. Right. So um, that is, you know, that's pretty much it. Um, like I said, I found that I found this huge resource, but I didn't have time to finish reading everything. I kind of glanced at it just to make a, um, just to get an idea. And also, the the most recent thing in his case is uh, he went before the parole board in Washington. Now, remember, if he gets parole in Washington, they're just going to send him to California. Of course, I think he wants to. He wanted to serve his time in California all along. Yeah, he wanted to be so, in California. So I mean, wow. yeah. Um, and on January twenty second, twenty twenty, uh, the parole board basically denied, recommended that he um, not be granted parole. Good. The maximum term is the rest of his natural life, um, and then it goes on to describe the offenses. Right. So he's got murder in the first degree, conspiracy, conspiracy to commit a felony, and then the California charges. Right. So um, let's see. I'm trying to figure out who – it doesn't name the victims. in the parole board. So, um, and, uh, basically he's saying he's not guilty. Of course he is. So, um, but, uh, there's an interesting, uh, an interesting quote from the, the report 
However, it should be noted that Mr. Bianchi's case is not the norm, and in fact, serial murders such as Mr. Bianchi are relatively rare. Consequently, it's likely that the risk assessment measures were not able to truly estimate the level of risk that Mr. Bianchi possesses as they were normed on a more typical criminal profile. While Mr. Bianchi does not possess many characteristics common in those who meet criteria for antisocial personality disorder, um, he met every criteria to be considered a psychopathic personality. This alone should be seen as a major risk factor. Right. So uh, he will probably file – I think he's filed yet another lawsuit, um, or he will probably file another attempt in Washington federal court to uh, challenge his sentencing and his continued confinement. Right. So – but yeah, that is Buono and Bianchi. Okay. Well, definitely, definitely learn some, uh, learn some things. Yeah, I remember these because I was, um, I was 13 when this started. And I remember, you know, Hearing about it and reading about it on the news and newspapers. Right. And well, like I um, said, I mean, I can definitely say I know more about the Hillside Strangler or Stranglers than I did beforehand, for sure. I mean, it was interesting, just the stuff that he came up with too. I mean, just on demand, a new personality. Just that's hilarious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, he was – it was fun. Well, like I said, he's slick and he's a con man. So, you know, he's happiest when he's scamming somebody. He referred to the murders with Angelo as a scam. When are we going to go scamming? True. So, you know, that's that's just – you know, that's where his mind is. Very true. All right, so um, yeah, he is now sixty-nine. He'll be seventy-one next year. He's sixty-eight, going on sixty-nine. Okay. So. <clears throat> So that is it. Okay. Definitely an inter- another great episode, Lisa. Full of information that Thank I'll be you. honest, I, did, I definitely didn't know. Yeah. Oh, and also one thing I forgot to also put in. There are two additional victims. One whose murder precedes Yolanda Washington's. Her murder was in early September 1977. Mm-hmm. And a second victim around the time of um, Dolly and Sonia Johnson's murder, but Uh they were never officially linked to Borno Bianchi. Okay. And even though some sources believe that they're linked 
they're linked, they're not officially linked in any of the any of the resources that I found. Um, and what linked all these murders in Los Angeles were the five point restraint marks on the victims as well as the display of the bodies uh-huh. on hillsides or public streets. I mean Judith Miller's Judith Miller's body was left on a public street in full view of children who would be going to school the next day. Which is horrible. Uh the person who lived in the house where her body was dumped in front well it, you know, her body was dumped in front of the house. He put a tarp over the body so the kids couldn't see her. Uh-huh. Um so uh yeah, that's um that's Kenneth Bianchi. And you know, it's the it's we see the, the revision the revisionist history. So evidence that was relied on at trial is all wrong. It, they didn't really find anything. There was no evidence. I I never had credentials for a psychologist. Um, those were not in my possession, probably meaning I did not have them in my hands when police found them. Therefore, they were not in my possession. Right. And, of course. Uh, you know, he has a story about he purchased the horn necklace from a rush, you know, from a, a jeweler in Los Angeles, and the ring was one he purchased somewhere else. Um, it didn't belong to Yolanda Washington. You know, I'm surprised he hasn't asked for DNA testing, frankly. Right. Very true. I, I was very, very surprised that he never asked for DNA testing. On any huh. of the cases, of course, he was a non-secreter, and that would have worked for 1977. But if there's a single rape kit from any of the victims, more likely than not, it would be his DNA and Angelo Bornos, or Good his point. DNA if it's victims he raped and murdered, or Bornos. But I don't know. Like I said, they bathed the bodies prior. To dumping them, and so I don't know that there were any rape kits. Although they did know, at least with one or two, that they were dealing with non-secreter. Okay. So, all right. Well, let's go ahead and call it a night. Okay. Let's Put a bow on it, right? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Conahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'BrienLN. Join us on Tuesday, April 21st, 2020 at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for Episode 8, State of Texas versus Tommy Lynn Sells. Sells was a drifter who murdered people in New York, Illinois, Missouri, Kentucky, Massachusetts, and Texas between 1987 and 1999. On December 31, 1999,
himself entered the Harris home where he raped and murdered 13-year-old Katie Harris. He also attempted to kill her friend, 10-year-old Crystal Searles. Crystal survived and identified the attacker. Sells was subsequently convicted and sentenced to death. We'll talk about Sells' history and his confirmed murders. Then we'll talk about the attack on Katie and Crystal, Sells' arrest, trial, and appeals. Finally, we'll talk about Sells' April 3, 2014 execution in Huntsville, Texas. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.